We're continuing together our study in the Gospel of John. And we are today in chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. And the cross, you'll notice, is a major theme. I'd encourage you to listen carefully and, and follow along in your Bible as I read John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Jesus speaking says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. We begin by looking at a, if you will, a conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father in heaven. It, this, this, remember if you, the background, this, this event and this, these words are precipitated. They're, they're brought on by some Greeks or Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles, who had come to, with the crowds to Jerusalem to worship for the Passover. We would understand that they were what's called God-fearers, Gentiles who were drawn to the Jewish faith, drawn to the Jewish God, drawn to the Jewish morals, but not coming so far as to actually being converted to Judaism. But they were coming to worship in the temple, and when they heard that Jesus was there, they, they wanted to see him, not just to see him at a distance, but to to speak to him, to interview him, if you will, to have a conversation. They wanted to meet Jesus. Well, that uh, led Jesus to comment that he said, now I know that my hour has come. This was an evidence to him, a manifestation of the fact that there was a great pivot about to happen. As he was coming into Jerusalem, the Jewish people, the nation as a whole, of course there were exceptions, his own disciples were Jews who believed. But the nation as a whole was hardening in unbelief. And the very crowd that could sing, wave palm branches and, and, and say, Oh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of the week, they'll be crying, crucify him. We'd rather have you release a terrorist, Barabbas, than Jesus, the Savior. The Jewish nation was hardening in unbelief and was about in God's program to be set on, set on the shelf, 
to be restored at a later time, but the focus of God's grace now moving to the Gentiles. And for most of us, that's very good news, <laughs> that the Gentiles could be included in God's grace. But when these Gentiles are there in the temple precincts and saying, we want to see Jesus, what a contrast to the Jews who are saying, we want to, the Jewish leaders at that very time were plotting his death and murder. In fact, the Jewish leaders, you'll notice carefully, they won't even speak his name. They always call him this one, that man. They so despise him, they won't even let his mouth be, their, his name to be in their mouth. So this, the, these Gentiles and, and the Jews, there's such a contrast here. The pivot is coming. The gospel is now, Jesus had said, I, I have sheep that are not of this flock. The program is now turning to a focus on the, bringing the gospel to all the world, to the Gentile world in particular. And for the last 2,000 years, aside from the early years in the church in Jerusalem, the church has been primarily Gentile. Well, this pivot really happens at the cross. And so when Jesus is seeing these things happen, um, the cross becomes, you know, it's not a surprise. It's been the plan all along. But there's something about now it comes. You might think about times in your life when you knew something was coming, but then when now is the time, to put it in a negative way, maybe you're, you knew all along you had to have a medical procedure, a surgery, and finally it's the day and, or the night before and you're anticipating. Or maybe in a joyful way, you've been planning a wedding for, it seems like, 12 years. And here you are, you're about to go down, and, or maybe a, a father about to, lead his daughter down the aisle. He knew that's it's a very simple process. Walk some steps, not too fast. Say a few words, her mother and I do. And the poor guy can barely get down past the first pew. There's one thing about knowing it's coming and the other, oh, it's happening. And here Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. That's a powerful expression. Now my soul is troubled. That, that can be used of violently stirring up waters. It can be used of, of, a, of a riot breaking out. His, his, his soul is shaken, troubled deeply. Isn't that amazing? Here's the prince of peace with a troubled soul. Within a couple of chapters, he'll be telling his own disciples using the same word, don't be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. But his is. His, his, his heart is in a storm. And this is the one who could, who could still a storm, remember? And there in the boat, just hush. The storm's gone. And turning to his disciples, Oh, ye of little faith. But right now, there is a storm blowing in his heart. He's there on the Temple Mountain, and just the other side of the city wall, is the cross. The Greeks had brought that to clarity. The time is now. The hour has come. And so here comes the cross. What is it that so troubles Christ's soul on the cross? What has him shaken to his core? Why is he so troubled? It's not because of death. 
you know, we can look through history and, and, and see many people point to Socrates. You might, if you're familiar, he was condemned to death and had to drink his own poison. And, and, it, and it's, it's famous in history how peaceful he was in the whole process and even philosophical. Surely Jesus could do better than that. Some have thought it's the, it's the horror of the cross. The Romans had created a form of execution that was brutally torturous and, and shockingly um, full of shame. It, it was meant to disgrace and to torture to death the victim. But many have died horrible deaths. Again, this is appropriate on Memorial Day week and how we can think of those who, knowing they were going into certain death, went. Is, is Jesus not capable of that? Of course he is. No, the issue here is not the death or the physical brutality. And the very fact that he says his soul is troubled tells us something about the cross. It wasn't just a Roman execution. The center of the cross was when Jesus was going to pay the penalty of our sin. It's expressed well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At the cross, the one who was sinless, the one who had been himself the holy, who is the holy, holy, holy God, on him would be laid the guilt of man. And with that guilt, the judicial wrath of his father, Jesus who had known only perfect communion with God for eternity and when he took upon himself humanity 30 years earlier than this event he had known nothing but communion with his father again and again we see him praying and speaking of my father my father but then what will he say at the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me 2 Corinthians 5, 12 and 1 tells us that God made him bear our guilt. Galatians 3, 13 expresses it this way. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The idea of crucifixion shows that he is, the, he is his bearing our curse. It, it was a horrible physical death. But that was not what troubled his soul. It was to bear the infinite wrath of his father with whom he had known nothing but perfect communion. The thought of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's promise to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. But to a son, 
forsaken. The thought of that cross in that way has his heart quaking, turmoil. He goes on, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So with the thought and the horror of that, he, he asks for the, kind of a rhetorical question. Should I tell God, no? I don't want to go to this cross. Well, that would be true. But no cross. In Gethsemane, he'll say, let this pass. If there's any other way. There he's, he's, try, he's expressing his recognition of the horror of the judgment about to fall. Not the Roman judgment. Heaven's judgment. In the few hours of darkness on the cross, he will bear an eternity of hell's wrath. But should he say, no, let's not do this? Father, save me from this hour. Verse 28, he goes on and begins by saying, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. He surrenders to the plan that they made from eternity past. And his longing is simply that his father be glorified. By the way, in doing that, what he's saying is something amazing. The cross is is human brutality at, at its worst. The cross, it's God's wrath in its fullness. But what does he call it? Glory. Father, glorify your name. God's glorified in the cross. That's something that became a problem. For Jew and Gentile alike, Paul says um, the cross is, is foolishness to the Greeks who treasured wisdom. And the cross is a shame to the Jews who, long, who thought only of a Messiah who would bring glory. But he sees God being glorified at the cross. He says, Father, glorify your name. Shall, shall, I, shall I say no? No, instead I'll say, Father, yes, glorify your name. Yes to the cross. Verse 28 goes on. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So if the father publicly answers and audibly answers the son. Sometimes we pray and we would would sure like an audible answer. Or we're looking for a sign of some sort. There were three occasions that are recorded where God spoke audibly from heaven in the life of Jesus. Uh, J.C. Rowell, I've mentioned it before. 
Bishop Ryle says this, This wondrous voice was heard three times during our Lord's earthly ministry. Once it was heard at his baptism, when the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Remember, this is my beloved son. Once it was heard at his transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared for a season with him before Peter, James, and John. And once it was heard here at Jerusalem, in the midst of a mixed crowd of disciples, and unbelieving Jews, and I might add to that, and uh, wandering Gentiles. God spoke. I have glorified it and will glorify it. The response is, is telling in verses 29 and 30. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said, It had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. He didn't need the audible answer of God. He knew in his heart God's answer. He said, this is for you. You might remember in the book of Acts chapter 9 when Paul was on the the way to Damascus and had his Damascus road experience. Actually, I should say Saul, his name. He went by a different name later on. But when he went and and he he was struck by a brilliant light brighter than the, the Middle Eastern sun at noon, blinded him. Remember, God spoke to him. Jesus spoke to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. We're told that, of course, Paul had this understanding of what Jesus was saying, and, and a con- if you will, a conversation. But we're also told there in Acts 9 that some of those, they heard sound, but they did not distinguish the words. It appears to me in this event in Jerusalem, they're understanding the words. Jesus said, this came for your benefit. And some say an angel spoke to him. And some said it sounded like thunder. What's the distinction? One thought is those who thought it was thunder, they were further away. You, know, you maybe know that. Some, there's someone close by can understand and others at a distance. It's just they could hear something. One suggestion has been made. I kind of like this one. Uh, to the Hebrew-speaking Jews, when God spoke in Hebrew, they understood. To the Gentiles who didn't know Hebrew, it just sounded like noise. Have you ever experienced that when you're in another country and it just sounds like noise? Um, and so, maybe that's what happened. And that's a reminder to us, by the way, you should probably start learning Hebrew now. because you know, How do I know that's what they, what they say? Hallelujah and amen. I like when I'm... Uh, in other contexts and say, and it's kind of, I'll tell some people, oh, look, you already speak Hebrew. What? I just heard you say amen. You know, this is, you're, you're, you're making great progress. <laughs> but here's this incredible encounter as Jesus confesses his turmoil, surrenders to the plan of God for his glory. And that affirmation, which is for him, but especially for the crowd, This is the plan. This is my glory. How can Jesus say, bring it on? Yes, I'll do it. Because his heart's commitment is glorify yourself. For God's glory. For God's glory. Remember what the first question of the Westminster Catechism says. 
What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That one question and answer really summarizes an immense amount of truth. What is our purpose in life? What gives meaning to life? What brings true joy in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made for that. And when we depart from that, then we depart from what, we are, what we're here for, and we lose the joy of, of doing what we're supposed to do. Remember, kind of brings to mind, remember the story of Eric Little, the uh, Scottish marathon, or Sc- Scottish runner, not marathons. Um, but he, he, he competed in all kinds of, kinds of events and, and had a strong testimony for Christ. One thing he said is when I run, you know, he says, God made me fast. He recognized, you know, yes, he trained, but God gave him speed. And so he said, when I run, I feel his glory. And so he used his, his athletic ability uh, to open doors where he could share Christ in all kinds of contexts at the, at the Olympics uh, when he did go. And that even opened doors when he was a, a, a if you will, kind of a prisoner of war um, in China when the Japanese had, had conquered the area. His, his, his fame as, a, as an Olympic star open doors to glorify God and so may God be glorified Jesus was driven by that goal to glorify God one of the questions that comes to my mind is am I driven by that goal are we is that my goal as an individual is that my goal in our in our marriage is that my goal in our family Is that our goal as a church? That our highest ambition is that God be glorified. When that's, notice how that transforms Jesus. As he anticipates a horror that we cannot comprehend. His heart is put at peace by yielding and longing for the glory of God. That transforms our pain. That transforms our suffering. That transforms our grief and our loss. When if our ambition is that God be glorified, then we recognize it's not just my comfort, my possessions, my stuff, whatever it might be, but if, if God can be glorified through my loss, through my pain, then, to God, then God glorify yourself. That's why I'm here. And that's my greatest ambition. We can, be, we can learn from Christ. Well, they then goes on to explain the importance and power of the cross in verses 31 to 33. In verse 31, he says, 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he said, this is the hour. This is the, 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 it is time for the cross. And when he says the hour, of course, he's thinking just a couple of days out. But now it's the cross. And he says, this will bring judgment of the world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. When we see that word world in John's vocabulary, now that's the world is the, the, the world system that is opposed to God. So it's kind of the world uh, uh, that's opposed to an, an enmity with God. And this says judge, the, the cross will bring judgment to the world. The world had passed judgment on Jesus. They rejected him. They crucified him. And in doing so, they showed their own guilt. Their very rejection and crucifixion of Jesus brought judgment because it showed that God had sent his son and and this is what they did. I always wonder, and and if you read over in the book of Acts when, when the apostle Peter preached his first message after the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he basically explained to the people of Israel surrounding him there still for a, for a feast in Jerusalem coming from all over the world he cries out to them and says explains to them God sent his Messiah and you crucified him and for those who have ears to hear in that crowd they are horrified at the thought we pray every day that God will send him his Messiah when he finally does what do we do we, we give him over to the Romans to be crucified and they cry out to Peter, brother, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And he says, come to Christ for forgiveness. The cross will bring judgment to the world by showing this is what you do with God's gift. You reject it. You hate it. And also speaks and says, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. The cross, many look at the cross and say, what a terrible waste, what a terrible defeat. There are some that, that don't think crosses should be in church. And, and uh, there, there's, a, for example, a cult called the Unification Church. Reverend Sun Myung Moon start, was the founder of that. And, and he said, Jesus came as Messiah, but he failed in his mission. And so God was going to raise up a new Messiah from Korea. Guess who? And one of the things that, and they have an ambition. They reach out and they try to recruit churches to come along. And one of their whole points is they, want, they, they encourage people, take that cross and throw it in the dumpster. That's a sign of defeat. Christ failed. And now we need the Korean Messiah to get it right. That shows a complete absence and a rejection of the true gospel. Jesus and the Father here are saying, this is God's glory in its greatest display. Greater than the display of seeing his incredible majesty and creativity and creation, the cross displays his grace like nothing else. But it also, so while, while Satan might think, we got him, they rejected him, 
crucified, dead, and buried. Actually, that was the defeat of Satan. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve had sinned and, and rebelled by taking of the tree that was forbidden to them, God announced judgment on them. This is all in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm trying to get to Genesis 3, and I can't keep going to the title page. It's that early in the book. Genesis 3. Remember, God called to Adam, where are you? Again, when God asks a question, he doesn't need information. He's looking for confession. We're here. We're ashamed. Why are you ashamed? Guilt. Sin. And he speaks to the woman, what have you done? She says to the, it was the serpent's fault. He says, he says to the man, what have you done? He said, well, the woman made me do it. He says to the woman, what have you done? The serpent made me do it. And then he addresses the serpent who has no legs to stand on. <laughs> and the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The serpent is a, was the picture and manifestation of Satan himself. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, her ultimate seed, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. I often think of that if I were to come to you with a hammer and say, I'm going to give you a, a, a blow. A bruising blow with this hammer. Do you want it on your heel or your head? <laughs> now, creatively, you'd probably say, let's look for another option. Can we find a nail? <laughs> but if I had to take the wound, I'd rather take it on the heel than the head. Satan will think at the cross, I crushed him. But that was a blow to the heel. The real crushing was to the head of Satan, defeated at the cross. That's why you'll often see in religious art a picture of, of Christ stomping on a serpent. His cross is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. Satan's already defeated in that sense, and the, the, the fullness of that defeat is just going to work itself out as time comes. But he is already defeated at the cross. It's just now the unfolding of that defeat in the ongoing years. So judgment on the world that rejected Christ and on the Satan who opposed Christ. Now verse 32, he goes on, and if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. The cross meant more than judgment. It meant grace. I will draw all peoples to myself. Now Jesus used that word draw earlier in this book in John chapter 6 verse 44. In John 6 44 we read this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. That word draw is also used of drawing in fishing nets. It has the idea of that which is drawn comes. It's an effectual and effective. It accomplishes its purpose. And Jesus said, when we come to God in faith, it's because God has drawn us to him. 
And here Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to himself. Is he saying every man will be drawn in salvation? No. The Bible's clear. There's heaven and hell. There are those who receive and those who reject. There are those who believe and those who rebel. He's not saying all will be saved. But what he's saying here is all kinds of people. What's the context? The Jews are rejecting. The Gentiles are investigating. We want to meet Jesus. And so he's saying, there it is. I told you I would sheep of another pasture. I'm going to be drawing all peoples. And again, most of us aren't Jewish. And so this is good news for us. That we have a place in God's plan as well. All peoples. Jew and Gentile alike. Rich and poor alike. And these days Paul will say in Galatians, slave and free alike. Male and female alike. God's mercy extends to all. All types of people. As he draws to himself. And he said this, verse 33, signifying by what death he would die. What do you mean you're going to be lifted up? How is that a picture of death? Because that's what they did with the cross. You were lifted up for public display in your execution. And so Paul, John tells us that by saying lifted up, he was not only indicating that he would die, but in what means? Crucifixion. Jesus taught us last week. We talked about, he said, showing life comes from death. Unless you plant the seed, there'll be no plant. And all you have is a one seed. No, death is required for life to come. Here he tells us what kind of death? The death on the cross. A judgment by man. And a judgment from God on our sin. In this passage, Jesus is making very clear, this is God's plan. This is the center of his plan. The cross. A crossless Christianity is not Christianity. A crossless gospel is no gospel. And the whole point is, what he's saying is, is this is where it happens, where God deals with our sin problem. We're going through times in our country that are very frustrating. We're seeing crime in, in, in horribly uh, out of control in some areas. And one of the frustrations, we'll hear about a horrible crime, and then you'll read in the news a day or two later, oh, this is the 67th time he's been in and out of jail. He was released two days before he did this horrible crime. And, 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 and that's such an injustice to us. How can you not deal with these criminals and, and hold them accountable instead of just putting them out on the streets? A judge who will not deal with the crime is, is an illegitimate judge. It causes moral outrage. And if God is perfect, and if he is just, he must condemn sin. Or he's not God. He's not just. But in his mercy, 
He makes provision for forgiveness by his own son coming to bear our guilt on himself that we might have life. And as the book of Romans says, I think so masterfully, so that he might be just and the justifier of sinners. Just, he's not setting aside his righteous demands. He's fulfilling them in his son. And then by his grace, drawing us through that cross. The cross is God's plan, only plan, necessary plan for salvation. And he emphasizes this is God's plan for all people. He doesn't say, well, this is what will work for the Jews. This will work for the Greeks. This will work for the Athenians. All peoples, this is God's plan. God's only plan is to come to God through the cross. And Jesus will say that in just a couple of chapters. We'll get this in 2025. I, Jesus, will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. These final verses speak of the mystery of the cross in verses 34 to 36. In verse 34, the people answered him, We've heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, if you've been reading along in this passage or following, Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of Man in what we just read. He says, I must be lifted up. And so they're saying, how are you saying the Son of Man must be lifted up? They were actually listening to Jesus because earlier in, his, in this encounter in the temple, we saw in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. They're putting those things together. How is the Son of Man glorified? By being crucified. You notice what they say? Wait a minute. We read in the law, and by that they mean the Old Testament. Or we call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Bible, the law, God's scripture. We read in the scriptures, the Messiah is forever. How can you say he's going to die? Um, they're looking at various passages that would seem to point to that. First of all, Son of Man, they understand it's a messianic title. You see that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, 13, Daniel had this vision. I was watching in, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's given a kingdom. His uh, eternality is seen in the scriptures. Now, don't start singing with me, but in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. A son is given to us. A son is born. And on his shoulders, the government. And here it says, it's a lasting government. Luke 1, When Jesus, before he was born, it was said this of him. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there'll be no end. So they were getting it right. Wait a minute, Messiah's forever. How can you say you're going to die? They hadn't read the whole story. They miss 
parts of the other parts of the Bible about the Messiah. Daniel 9, 26. In Daniel 9, 26, we're told after the 62 weeks in Daniel's famous 70 weeks, it just says this, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's remarkable if you go back and look at that prophecy. Uh, that's, that gives the time frame of when Jesus would be, when the Messiah would be crucified. Jesus fulfilled that. But he'll be cut off. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the Messiah, the promise. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Messiah has to die. Now you talk to your Jewish friends, and this is one of the things that will give them the most struggle you say Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? If Jesus is the Messiah, how can that be that he was crucified? Actually, some of the earlier rabbis would said, it seems like there might be two Messiahs coming. One was, is, will come to suffer and one will come to reign. When we read our Bible and we read that we have the benefit of the New Testament, not two Messiahs, one Messiah coming twice. First, to deal with our sin problem. At the cross, he had to be cut off from the land of the living. He had to die for our guilt. The second time, to come and reign in glory, the Prince of Peace, reigning in righteousness. So they were right, and they were wrong. Right, a lasting kingdom, wrong. That doesn't rule out his death. Do you ever get frustrated sometimes when you ask a question of a teacher or something and they don't really seem to answer? I've quoted often my chemistry, one of my chemistry teachers, he was brilliant at this. Any question that was, you know, like you're thinking, yeah, I don't get that. His, his answer was, I can quote it to this day. You ask good questions, you'll go far in science. Let's move on. <laughs> After about the 20th time, I started getting it. That's another, that's, that's another, being translated, I don't know. <laughs> but notice how Jesus answers, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, how can you be Messiah if you're going to die? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So he doesn't directly answer the question. He does better. He answers the heart. This is one of the things that I, 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 I marvel to, to see in the life of Jesus. Well, people will come to him with all these questions and challenges. And it's amazing how I would be, let's focus on that question. But Jesus goes past that and says... Let's focus on the heart behind that question. And Jesus was a master of that. Of course, he's God and he can know the heart. It's hard to know the heart. Proverbs 20, verse 5 came to mind. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, we read, Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will dry it out, draw it out. We don't know what's in the heart of those around us. Teachers, 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could know what was really going on in the heart that's asking those questions and you could address that heart issue? That's the goal. Parents, same thing. It's so easy to focus on the, the words or the behavior. What's going on in the heart? Husbands, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could actually know what's going on in that heart? Wives, wouldn't it be wonderful to know if there's anything going on in that heart? But Jesus hears their question. He doesn't avoid the question. He answers the real question. A little while longer, the light is with you. He's the light. And notice if you read through it, it's the light, the light. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. They wanted to argue about questions of the Messiah and timing. And, 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 and they wanted to argue things. Kind of reminds me of when Nicodemus came, Remember? Oh, Rabbi, we know you must be from God. You do miracles like no one else. And what did Jesus say? You know, he wanted to talk about religion. And Jesus said to him simply, you must be born again. And, and Nicodemus had intellectual whiplash. What? <laughs> what does that mean? Again, you know, Jesus teaches by confusion. He gets them asking. Spiritual birth, not just physical birth. You must be born again. So he didn't ignore the question. He dealt with the real question. He's doing that with them now. He says, the light is with you. Take advantage of the light while you have it. Here I am. A couple days. I'm gone. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. He said, you have the chance right now. You're in the light. And one of the struggles is, have you never noticed... When you walk from light into darkness, it's really hard. And sometimes you have to kind of take a while for your eyes to um, adjust. Or if you have glasses like mine, your lenses and your eyes have to adjust. <laughs> oh, now I can see again. And he says, you've got a problem, folks. Right now you're in the light. It's about to get very dark. Because you're going to go from the radiance of my presence into the darkness of my absence. Now, now is the time to believe. That's why, and so, so here, notice he gives the invitation. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's calling them. This is another way of saying what he said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Believe. What do you need to do? Believe. In what? The light. Jesus is speaking of himself. Believe in me. Believe in me. And you'll become sons of light. Sons of God. Born again. Other ways we could say that. And he's warning them, don't miss the opportunity. He emphasizes... This, this passage tells us so much. What is our greatest need? The cross. What is our response to the, God's provision of forgiveness at the cross? Believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Trusting in him. That's, that's the response to the cross. And then we're told Jesus 
spoke these things and departed and hid from them. End of discussion. There's your challenge. You're in darkness. The light is right here in front of you. Many of those, some, will, will come to faith, when, especially after the resurrection and ascension and all that's over, when Peter preaches, thousands respond because Jesus has been plowing the ground and planting the seed. And they embrace the light. But he made a vital statement. Now is the time. Well, the light is before you. Scripture says, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Because you have no guarantee of tomorrow. How many incidents I could give and examples of those who thought and had their plans for tomorrow. But their tomorrow was nothing like they expected. They were in eternity. The one who takes a turn and encounters a truck. My first pastor's wife, 40 years old, taking her daughter to school, sat on the bed to put on her shoes, and entered into glory. She had a whole plan. Of just, even her day's plan didn't get fulfilled. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. The time to believe in the light is in the presence of the light. The time to believe in Christ is now. Indecision can be a decision. Have you ever noticed that? I, I think if I understand right, the housing market's starting to slow down. When it was at its peak of, of, of heat and, and action, you might be standing in the house thinking, well, should we do this? Boom, it's gone. <laughs> okay, we'll go look at another house. And you start getting the idea. Now, we're going to have to walk in there and decide on the spot. Um, have you ever noticed that? We, we have these elections co coming and going. It's kind of a necessary evil, it seems like. But have you ever thought, well, I've got to, I've got to figure out who I'm going to vote for. Next thing you know, oh, the, oh yeah, the votes, the electing was yesterday. Well, your indecision made a decision. If you keep evaluating, wanting to debate the issues and, and, and argue them like these folks were trying to do with Jesus, Jesus cuts right through that and says, you're in the presence of the light. You've heard the truth. Will you believe? I am not Jesus. I am not the light. But, but God's word, the Bible says the Bible is a light to our feet. It is God's light. It's God's truth. And so if I can put a sense of urgency, if you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus would say, now is the time. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee you'll make it home. I don't want to be negative, but that's just a reality. And so let me urge you, as Jesus did, in the presence of the light, believe in him and trust in him as Savior. And Jesus made it clear. What is, what is the issue? Sin. What's the solution? The cross. What do we do with the cross? We trust in the one who was on the cross dying for our sins. We trust in him as Savior. In 2 Corinthians again, 5.21, 
God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. We call it, it's the glorious exchange. I give him my sin when I trust in him and ask his forgiveness and, and, and trust in him as Savior. He gives me his righteousness. In the accounting books of heaven, next to my name and the ledger is the righteousness of Christ. Not that I earned it, but I received the gift by trusting in Christ as Savior. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the message to take home. The cross and your response of faith. For those of us who know the Savior, notice Jesus did say, while you're in the presence of the light, walk in the light. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, our lives should reflect the light of his glory. And, and what greater way to live than to say, my ambition is to glorify God. And Lord, wherever that means to you, glorify yourself in my life. That would be my greatest joy. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ for allowing us to look into his heart today in a way that is powerful and moving. Father, may we know him as Savior. May we, may we grow in him as Savior. May we worship him as Savior, the one who, troubling as it was to bear your wrath, did it for us. Oh, Lord. For that we give you the praise and glory in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ.